0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1687. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty
1: education starts here. The Tom Woods Show.
0: Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Michael Schellenberger is here today. He is a Time Magazine hero of the environment, a Green Book Award winner, and founder and president of Environmental Progress. And we're going to be talking about his brand new book, as in released just this week, Apocalypse Never, why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. I'm gonna let him tell us a little bit more about his background himself. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: All right, look, it's a tremendous book, very important, very well done. But I wanna start with a question where the answer may not be found in the book. And that's just a question I'm curious about on a personal level. You are very concerned about the environment as your, you know, the work you've done over the course of your life indicates. Is there any part of you that feels uncomfortable writing a book like this and appearing, let's say alongside media figures who probably have laughed at environmental activism and who might take some of the material that you're presenting as an excuse to keep ignoring the environment and not thinking about it. I mean, I wonder about that. Like, Do you feel in any way used by some of these people?
1: Oh gosh, no, quite the opposite. I'm really glad to be having the conversations I'm having. It's taken me a really long time to get here it's taken a huge amount of effort and a fair amount of, of pain and suffering, including the loss of friends and donors. So to be able to talk to people that I don't agree with on everything is truly one of the greatest pleasures. I mean, it's really the pleasure of being in a democracy. You know, the idea that I would need to only talk to people I completely agree with, I don't really know that there's anybody I would talk to. I mean, I wrote Apocalypse Never so I could say what I believe. And so I feel very secure talking to anybody because my views are now in a 400 page book with hundred pages of footnotes. And I don't expect people to agree with me on everything. I will, will probably disagree with some parts of my own book in a decade. I hope so, or some parts of it anyway, probably wrong. Um, so no, gosh, on the contrary, it's been just a complete delight to be able to talk okay.
0: about it. Oh, that's good, that's good. That, that makes me feel a lot better. All right, now again before we really tackle the meat of the book, I wonder if you could take a little time, you and I are just about the same age, we grew up under the same, you know, cultural influences. I remember in 19 what year was it? Maybe it was either 88 or 92, somebody saying, oh it might have been Dukakis in 88, I can't remember, but a democrat saying that in the future the environment is going to be a major political issue. And I remember thinking, that's not going to happen. Nobody talks about the environment. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Don't listen to me. I am totally wrong when it comes to predicting political trends. But anyway, you and I grew up at, at about the same time. Uh, what is your background and what kinds of work have you done uh, relating to the environment?
1: I mean, I've been an environmentalist all my life. Um, was a very left-wing kid. Uh, had very progressive parents. You know i I got involved in in environmental activism at the age of sixteen. I held a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network. I went at seventeen, I went to live with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua because I admired their socialist revolution. I spent a lot of time working with radical left groups in in Brazil, including interviewing the the future President Lula. So I really spent my whole life, you know, helped save ancient redwoods uh, you know, I've been working on climate change. I've been a climate change activist for almost twenty years. So um, you name it. I mean, the the thing that's made me different in the last few years is that I've been trying to keep nuclear plants open because I think they're so important for a lot of different reasons, including carbon emissions, not just carbon emissions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I am an I am an environmentalist. I I think I'm a true environmentalist, and that the the apocalyptic environmentalists I criticize in the book are the false ones.
0: Was there in the course of your life a uh, some kind of a change you underwent in your thinking? Was it an evolution? Was it something sudden? Or do you feel like you're the same, but everybody around you in the movement has changed?
1: I mean, I think my values are the same. I think my vision of what's a good world is is about the same as it has been since I was a boy in the sense of I want to see everybody lifted out of poverty. I want to see more environmental protection. It's changed gradually and with critical moments. So I'd say the first... So, I was never a Malthusian, meaning I was never somebody that thought there was like too many people in the world. That was never something I believed in. I was always, I always found there's, I always thought there was something really wrong with it, even though I couldn't quite explain what I would bother me about it. It seemed racist, actually, to me. Um, but then it was really figuring out that climate change was just a technical issue that you just needed to produce energy without carbon emissions. And then I thought you could do that with renewables. And then I realized you couldn't do it with renewables or it, it wasn't possible and that you needed nuclear power. And then I'd say that was, that was a huge change. I mean, that's maybe the biggest is just embracing nuclear. And then, once you, and then once you embrace nuclear, it raises this problem, which is like, why bother with renewables at all? And then I've even, you know, in the book, it really even goes further and it points out all the ways in which renewables are really quite harmful for the environment because solar and wind farms require 400 times more land than a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant. that actually, there's this thing called energy density of the fuels and a thing called power density of production, which is just the power plants or the side of production, like the mines or the gas wells. And that those really explain, like, almost everything about the impact of energy and development on, on the environment. And that the more energy-dense fuels you're using, the less environmental impact you have. So the the moral... The moral trajectory of energy transitions is the same as the physical one, which is from wood and dung to coal to oil to natural gas to uranium for nuclear. It took me a while to get to something so simple as that energy ladder and the superiority of and that power density being kind of the key factor. It took a long time to get there. And then it also just, you know, as I described in my the article I wrote on Monday, it just took a long time to get my life set up where I wouldn't you know lose all my friends and and funders by by telling the full truth about the natural environment.
0: All right, so let me make sure I understand your position. Let's suppose we lived in a world in which nuclear was not an option and all we had were fossil fuels and and, and renewables. Then would you say that people predicting very very bad catastrophic outcomes unless we did radical things to disrupt industrial society would then in that case be correct? I'm sorry, can you just, can you rephrase that? Well, in other words, let's suppose we didn't have the option of nuclear because a lot of environmentalists, as you know, don't want nuclear, even though, as you say, it really does solve the problem. So let's suppose we had a world where nuclear wasn't even an option. No one had discovered it. So all we had is fossil fuels and then wind power and you know some things like that. In that case, would people who say climate change is an existential threat and it will have catastrophic results, would they be correct there if we had no nuclear power to fall back on?
1: Well, it's hard to say. I mean, really, the world you're describing is the world before World War II when we, when we, when we set off to really harness nuclear energy. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a kind of, there's a, there's a historical shift here. I mean, I, I described three women in the book, uh, Bernadette in the Congo. Suparti in Indonesia, and my wife, Helen, in the United States, to just give a sense of how they produ- how they consume food and energy and how so different it is. And you know, a, a, you know small subsistence farmers like Bernadette in the Congo are, using, are, are in a renewable-powered organic economy. That's, those are the actual technical definitions of their fuels. Suparti is in a uh, mostly now as escaped renewable energy and is now using fossil fuels. And my wife here in California with us, we use a mixture of of hydroelectric and and natural gas, and we were, we did have more nuclear, have some nuclear, and so that transition is is what really matters. And you know, we do have nuclear, so you know, it's not. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how much I have to say about imagining a world where we don't have nuclear. I can I can we can describe what the world was like when we didn't have it, but but we do have it now, and I think one of the main things that need to change in in the way we think about the environment is just thinking of nuclear as sort of the ultimate and final fuel. I mean, even if you get fusion, it doesn't really improve nuclear fission very much.
0: Well, I was just thinking that because some of the people you're criticizing act as if we live in a world without nuclear because they've ruled it out. And so in that world, they feel like either we do something substantial to roll back industrial society or dramatically Dangerous things begin to happen, and, and so so let me go from there to uh, w- one of the things you point out in the book involves uh, extreme weather events, and and I you know I'm not an, I'm not an expert on any of this. I don't know anything about any of this except what a layman might know. But I do know that my B.S. meter is pretty reliable, and every time there is a hurricane or whatever these days, we get told, "Well, this is what you stupid rubes deserve for not halting climate change," and that always just seemed so opportunistic and phony to me. What's the real truth to that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I point out, this is actually an interesting, it's an argument that we're sort of having now. People are starting to complain about, I'm, I'm, I'm working on something about it, but basically the deaths from natural disasters globally have declined 90% in the last 100 years. They've declined 80% in the last 40 years. This is an amazing story, so we should just pause for a moment and celebrate the fact that we allow fewer, that fewer and fewer of us are killed in hurricanes, floods, tornadoes and the like. And that's because of economic development mostly, but also just being smarter and having better preparedness. Um, in terms of property damage from natural disasters, when you normalize the data, which just means that you account for the fact that we're much richer now and have much more infrastructure and much more valuable infrastructure than we had say 50 or hundred years ago, there's no change to the impact of disasters. Now, I've got some people on Twitter and elsewhere saying Michael is wrong because in fact, disasters are getting worse and we can do some science showing that that um, longer fire seasons, that hurricane intensity in some cases, even if not frequency, maybe some more heat waves, a little more flooding are increasing. And what's so manipulative about what they're saying, and so misleading? I'm going to make this point: is that they're 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 confusing people between the difference between a hurricane, flood, tornado, and heat wave, and a disaster. And that's because the public thinks when we go a hurricane is coming, we think the hurricane is the disaster. But the definition of disaster in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and really everybody else is it's is the hurricane's interaction. It's with people and environments, in other words, it's the impacts of hurricanes and wildlife, and for, you know, and forest fires, wildfire, sorry, and and uh, and droughts and heat waves and all the rest. It's the impacts. Okay, so what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the thing we just talked about: how many people die and what's the property damage. And on those two factors, deaths are going down, and there's no change to property damage. So the fact that you can find, you know, some change in the intensity of some of these weather events is not the same thing as as increasing disaster. So I think it's so misleading. I get up, you can tell I get, I get emotional about it because it's really the part of how people, how people are misled on climate change. They, are, they have convinced school children that like when a hurricane hits, you know, it's because we've done something wrong with fossil fuels and it's a religious construction. It's that we're being punished for our sins against nature. We have to harmonize human civilization and nature. And, and the people, I mean, I, I have to say, I've tried to forgiveness because I think the people promoting this religious idea are just, as, are, are, are just as caught up in the religion as anybody else.
0: You had an article uh, you made mention of uh, briefly uh, earlier this week that appeared on the Forbes website. And there was some pushback against it from some environmentalists. And then it looked like the article was pulled. What's the story there?
1: Well, what I'm comfortable saying at this point is that um, I wrote an essay that I believe fit well within Forbes' contributor guidelines. Uh, they disagreed. They, put the, they pulled the article down against my strong objections. I continue to believe the article fits within the editorial guidelines of Forbes. Um, however, I have enjoyed my time writing for Forbes, and I will continue to write for Forbes Okay, so fair that's enough. All I want to say about it. Yeah,
0: no, no, that's quite understandable. It's uh, just that I've I've read some pieces on Forbes that are an absolute embarrassment, and and they stay up. So, so that was very
1: frustrating. Well, There you go. Well,
0: yeah. <laughs> so better you uh, saying it than me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you, you are you are innocent of this. Uh, one thing though that I did see some pushback on is actually the subject of chapter two of your book, which involves the chapter title is "Earth's lungs aren't burning," and. The, there's a quotation early on from Leonardo DiCaprio saying the lungs of the earth are in flames and they're referring to photographs of the Amazon rainforest in flames. And you were objecting to this. So what is your, what is it that you're saying here?
1: Well, this was so interesting. I mean, you know, I, I knew that this lungs of the world thing was wrong. I, I actually did work in the semi Amazon as a, in my, in my twenties when I lived in Brazil, which I mentioned. Um, and I knew they weren't the lungs of the world. It doesn't make any sense, by the way, because lungs absorb oxygen and emit carbon, and the whole point of the rainforest, they absorb carbon. It should have been a big red flag for any environmental journalist who had, you know, Environmental Studies 101 in college. But nonetheless, it got repeated everywhere. And I was even surprised with the early readers of the book. They were skeptical still when I said that the Amazon does not produce oxygen, which is also, by the way, another contradiction. <laughs> but... Um, the Amazon is not a, a an oxygen generator. It actually also consumes oxygen through the process of respiration, um, which is the breakdown of of soil matter and and biomass in the forests. So I added a whole boring paragraph to the book. <laughs> I wanted this book to be read by high school students. You know, I want to able, people. Everybody, I wanted it to be a popular. I wanted people to read it and enjoy it. So I didn't want to go into. But I discovered this was such a myth that I had to spend all this time on it. But it really gets at, I think, what's even underneath all of it is this idea that the Amazon is sort of pristine nature. It's as, it's as though it was what God intended the earth to be. And, of course, we know, of course, that what we call the Amazon is actually much of it is just forest regrowth over what had been cities and huge forestry settlements by indigenous people before the arrival of Europeans who died, of course, mostly from disease. So, you know, the whole story, I mean, and, and you know, and and my, and would. Conjures my outrage is just the fact that, you know, the United States and Europe and every developed country got rich by de- defore- cutting down their forests, built making farms, and then switching to fossil fuels. And that's and what environmental so-called environmentalism has defined itself as is basically depriving those two things to other countries, which is basically depriving them of prosperity. So that's the, I think that's what animates much of that Brazil chapter. The final point I'll just make is is that I, we document how Greenpeace made the situation much, much worse by encouraging the fragmentation of forests and the fragmentation of farming rather than concentrating farming and allowing larger reserves of the Amazon to be protected.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that last thing because the subtitle of your book, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, might be a, a bitter pill for some people who might say, the worst that could happen is that we get forced into action as problems get brought to our attention in dramatic fashion, perhaps exaggerated, but at least we make note of problems that without the exaggeration, we might not have noticed otherwise. I mean, I think people would come up with some kind of innocent accounting like that. Uh, In any event, though, let's take a quick break and come right back because there's so much to discuss here. Folks, one of the words that's been coined in our time is adulting. That's when you do something that people expect from an adult. Well, shopping for life insurance is one of those things, and it can raise a lot of questions. How much coverage do you need? Which insurance company is the best one for you? How much should it even cost? And at a time when it's more important than ever to have life insurance, the pandemic is making it a teensy-weensy bit more complicated to shop for it. And that's where Policy Genius can help. As a life insurance marketplace backed by a team of experts, Policy Genius is keeping track of all the changes in the market so you don't have to. They'll find you the right amount of coverage at the best possible price without the headache. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies in one place. It takes just a few minutes to compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. This doesn't just save a lot of legwork. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll be there to take care of everything. So if you need life insurance, but you're not sure where to start, head to policygenius.com. Policy Genius will find you the best rate and handle the process completely. They'll get you and your family protected and give you one less thing to worry about. Try it today. Now, of course, I want to make clear that the book is not entirely about climate change although that is kind of uh, that that can be found in in much of the book uh, but nevertheless one of the reasons that people have told us that we should try to avoid eating meat is because of the climate ramifications of that and that is another topic that you that you cover here can you help us make sense of these claims because they're they're very very uh, startling numbers about the the demands on the environment of of raising cattle and and what this means for climate and so on.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I definitely want to, I'm glad you emphasized that. I mean, really only one sixth of the book, uh, two of the 12 chapters are are on climate change. I mean, it kind of runs through other chapters, but for sure, I mean, humankind's biggest impact on the natural environment is through agriculture. And we use about half of the ice-free surface of the earth, humans do, And about half of that half is just for meat production. So if you really care about wildlife and protecting habitat, then you should want to concentrate meat production on smaller and smaller amounts of land. And so really what environmentalists have been advocating which is free range beef, organic beef, these cows taking over huge amounts of hillsides. It's very romantic for us. I actually take a hike every day in that kind of environment and the rolling hills and there's cows you know, a couple cows per you know square kilometer. You know, um, and it's very pleasant. But it's actually, if you want to have room for other wildlife, whether it's it's mountain gorillas in the in the in Africa, or it's yellow-eyed penguins in New Zealand, or whether it's bobcats and coyotes where I live, that's the one of the most important things is to actually support the concentration of meat production. So. I think that's, you know, that that was like, and it's a, you know, it's a harsh lesson. And I think part of it for people that are vegetarians is I I point out in here ways in which vegetarianism is not really motivated by saving the environment. It's motivated by some set of ethical concerns or moral concerns, you know, and, and so, but, but kind of to push back against it and kind of go, yeah, it's not just about the climate. If you really care about saving wildlife and saving endangered species then you should want maybe the most paradoxical thing for at least the left, which is you should want industrialized uh, meat production.
0: Not just in the environment, but in, in large part in environmental issues, we hear the claim made that people who are left progressives are really the party of science and that people who disagree with them are just science denialists. And therefore, you don't see very much robust debate because the argument is, why should we debate somebody who deny science. This is just a waste of everybody's time. So we don't really get the kind of meeting of the minds and back and forth that we might want in civil society when it comes to issues like this. What would you say to people who who make that kind of claim? I mean, obviously, the answer is your 400 plus page book with all the the citations. But that is the impression I think the general public has, that the environmentalists really have the better of the argument scientifically, and all their opponents have are some weak arguments about well we don't want to overburden the economy with all your environmental regulations
1: well yeah although i think i think conservatives need to take some responsibility for that too i mean i think that um that you know the, the conservatives have allowed the radical left to dominate the conversation on the environment for 50 years and i explore this in the book i mean it was i this i had this thing that was been bo- bothering me forever for years and i finally got to the bottom of it which was how does a philosophy that which is Malthusianism, which is based on, I don't want to go too much into it, but basically based on these ideas of this British economist in the 18th century who said, we're always going to run out of food because we're always going to make too many, we're always going to have too much reproduction. It was, he was just, he was making claims that were the exact opposite of what had been occurring up until that point and what would occur after, which is that we get better and better at growing food, more and more food. But anyway, heirs to that bad philosophy, who are known as Malthusians, basically combined with the radical left in the 60s to become what we call environmentalists. And this is a very strange thing because if you understand the intellectual history of the left and you understand the importance of Marx and and of Engels too, they hated Malthus. They attacked Malthus. They called him a stain on the human race. Socialists and, and progressives were the heir to the socialist tradition have, have always hated Malthus, including civil rights leaders I cite from the 60s were very suspicious of Malthusian environmentalism. So how did this, this occur? Well, they mar- it basically was a marriage of socialism and Malthusianism where the, the deal was, you know, we'll work to basically move to a low, a poor or low energy energy society in rich countries and in exchange we'll, we'll help poor countries get a little bit wealthier with like solar panels and batteries for their huts you know, in their villages, but heavens no, no industrialization or cities, and so um, the right embraced a more libertarian view and a more progressive, you know, what I would consider a more progressive view—a a, a more a view of human prosperity and 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 whatnot. But they sort of allowed themselves to get framed as favoring growth over the environment, and this was just never correct because we know that when you go from using wood and dung to using fossil fuels you use less of the environment. I mean, we just have known that for 200 years in some ways, or at least 150. And so I, I, this book does contain a challenge to conservatives. I mean, I wrote this book for a lot of different people and a lot of different reasons, but I definitely was writing it for conservatives and for Republicans. They were on my mind, and libertarians, to sort of say, it, you've got to challenge the radical left on an, on these environmental issues for the sake of other you know, liberals and Democrats, frankly, who are just completely cowed by these new left bullies who are just wrong on the facts. You know, the science is just not supporting really any of the major claims that environmentalists make. And I think conservatives and libertarians over the last 50 years have just retreated to this position of, we just need more markets. You know, we just need more free enterprise. And and saying nothing about the environment almost, a little bit, there's a few people, but mostly the view from Republicans has been, the environment is the Democrats, sandbox, don't play in the sandbox. Um, I hope that Apocalypse Never is taken up by conservatives and used to just absolutely pummel the new left, the radical left in the Democratic coalition, in part because I still consider myself a Democrat, I still consider myself a liberal, I guess I'm a moderate now rather than a progressive Democrat. But gosh, you know, um, I've been, for years, I've been like Republicans, once they figure out that they already agree with many of the things that need to be done to save the environment and they actually turn it into a politics, it's going to be very powerful.
0: You know, I'll just say as a libertarian that uh, I hear what you're saying. And I think, frankly, it's been laziness on our part. It's a lot easier to just have a, uh, standard boilerplate response about markets than it is to get into the actual details of each particular issue. So, you know, that's that's certainly well taken. Um, yeah, as yeah. we wrap up, I, I want to ask you about the somewhat provocative claim you make toward the end of the book that I find completely convincing, by the way, about the quasi-religious aspect of all this. Because I think not only do people have a, a yearning for transcendence, but if I may state this somewhat less sympathetically, I think among a lot of us, and I include myself in this, I mean, I'll be honest, there is a certain satisfaction you get from being able to pose as morally superior to other people, and this gives a lot of people the ability to do that, and I, I think that's a very, very poisonous thing in, the, in human nature.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting problem because, of course, in some ways, I I think, you know, we're we're all trying to feel morally superior. Like it's a kind of um, natural impulse. Um, And and in some ways it's healthy, right? You're trying to feel that you are um, behaving better, you know. And so it seems to me the question is, what is the moral framework, you know? And I point out that Judeo-Christianity has had a moral framework. And the moral framework has been that um, all humans, you know, have, there's something special about all he, about humans and that we are, you know, committed to each other and committed to um, loving each other and caring for one another against our worst impulses, you know, against our, our desires, our feelings of, of, of being cruel and domineering and destructive, this was a very difficult, the last chapter is a very difficult chapter, right? There's two chapters, by the way, I, maybe you're referencing the second to last, which is on power, where I document how environmentalists are always in stat, they're often seeking status, rewards, this is sort of what you might summarize as um, virtue signaling, compassionate, I mean, uh, uh, conspicuous compassion, <laughs> but really is, is often over things that are, are trivial and don't matter, like going vegetarian or not using plastic straws. When they should be about things like you know extending hydroelectric electric dams and flood control to the Congo, you should feel morally, you should feel like a good person and a hero for advocating the development in poor countries, and that the real problem is is the ways in which people have are feeling good about keeping other people down, about keeping poor countries poor, and and, and certainly about condemning silly behaviors that are trivial environmentally. And this is where a lot of environmentalists spend their time. I point out that, you know, if you go vegetarian, it reduces your carbon emissions like 2 to 4%. It basically has no impact. So, yeah, and I think it all, as I mentioned at the top of the, our podcast, it's like, I just think it's, a, I think it's something that secular people who are feeling insecure about their lives are drawn towards. And you see it, it manifests most strongly when people are in their adolescence And then again, with middle-aged people, who, by the way, tend to be very powerful people in news organizations, in the Democratic Party, in environmental organizations. So you often find people that most need to fearmonger about the end of the world and moralize around trivial behaviors that they view themselves as the paragons of, tend to be status-obsessed, status-insecure, existentially insecure, because I think they really you know, they really don't don't have that traditional religion. They've abandoned that traditional religion and are constructing a new one unconsciously. And that's where we get into so much trouble because they're not even aware of what they're doing.
0: Well, well, uh, that's very, very well said. So on that, I will uh, urge people to check out your book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. I'm linking to it on our show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1687. And best of luck with this very important book. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's our show for today. If you like and appreciate what I'm doing, please head over to supportinglisteners.com because the goodies you get as a supporting listener of the Tom Woods Show, it's almost embarrassing how many things you get. You're you're gonna be saying, Woods, it's just too darn many, but doggone it, that's the deal. You're just gonna keep on getting them. So check them out at supportinglisteners.com. Warm my heart. And tomorrow, Tom DiLorenzo back with a new book of his own. See you then.